coming up this week off screen. We meet Victor Frankenstein. Spend Christmas with the Coopers. Sing a sunset song. Party away the night before. Sit front row for the show of shows. Get a future shock with the story of 2000 AD. Learn that Imber means sing. And get a visit from Krampus. All those to come and more off screen. This is... This is off screen. With the latest film news and reviews, this is Offscreen, the on-screen radio show. So welcome to Offscreen, I'm Van Connor. My name is Case Allen. So shall we start with uh, Mr. Frankenstein this week? Mr. Frankenstein. Mr. Victor Frankenstein. So Victor Frankenstein is, of course, the uh, latest revisionist horror tale, uh, this time obviously based on Mary Shelley's uh, infamous tome, her iconic work of literature. And uh, this one is scripted by Max Landis, did you know? I did know that. Did you know that, Max Landis? I was aware. If you read the production notes for the film, they make a very big deal of... And despite the fact they never once mention exactly who Max Landis is, namely John Landis' son. Uh, this is also directed by Paul McGuigan, who most of us know really for his work on Sherlock, of all things. He's most known for Sherlock and nothing. Yeah, I guess so, yeah. I think he's in a couple of episodes of Doctor Who as well. So this version stars uh, Daniel Radcliffe as, well, he's a nameless circus uh, sort of clown, circus freak show performer, who's a hunchback, obviously. And one day, through a twist of fate, he encounters Dr. Victor Frankenstein, played by James McAvoy, who of course takes the young, gifted Igor under his wings, under his wings, under his wing, uh, cures him of his uh, his hunchback affliction, which it turns out is just an abscess that needs draining because dot 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 film, and uh, (laughs) Igor becomes an unwitting participant in the greatest monster story never told. Here's a clip. Igor and I stand upon the cusp of creating life out of death. Mr. Frankenstein. Victor, Victor, please. I find your promise more than a little unsettling. Igor, speak up. What do you think? Everyday science and technology changes the way we live our lives. Well said, that man. Life and death are different. I dream of a world where hope replaces fear. A world where a murdered man can stand in court to face his murderer, where a crippled soldier, shrapnel in his spine, can be killed, healed, then brought back to life to walk again. Life is beautiful. Now tell me what that says. Death. Thank you very much. I cannot argue with that. There it is, black and white, but with a little applied science. <laughs> Life. So this is pretty much exactly what you think it's going to yeah. be. Uh, it's a Van Helsing light. I mean, that, that, that's, that's to put it politely, it is kind of Van Helsing light. Well, that smells pretty light. It, it really is. But put it this way, there, there are issues with it. First of all, Daniel Radcliffe is is perfectly fine in it. He's, he's very enjoyable in it, and it's yet another and it's yet another one of those performances whereby Daniel Radcliffe gets increasingly better. And he is. He's one of these. Every single performance he puts in now is better than the last. And he's gotten far beyond the realm of sort of child actor at this stage. He's mm. now into actually. Do you know what? Not a bad little performer. I'm looking forward to seeing what he turns up with in uh, Now You See Me Too. 
Yes, that could be quite interesting. That could be yeah. quite fun. If he's enjoying himself, then I think it mm. could be quite fun. Um, the, the weirdest performance in this film, though, belongs to James McAvoy. Oh, really? Who is playing this as this sort of weird uh, Doctor Who type figure. And in a day and age in which you've got Peter Capaldi on TV playing mm. Doctor Who as Peter Cushing... It's kind of weird and borderline ironic that you've then got a version of Victor Frankenstein <laughs> that's playing being played and being played as Doctor Who. So like, this that's is kind of a weird role reversal yeah. there. Okay, fair enough. Although Doctor Who finishes tonight, so looking forward to that one. Mm, me too. Um, in the meanwhile, so you've got Victor Frankenstein, who's a sort of supporting character in the story. It's Igor's story. The love interest is Igor's love interest. Jessica Brown Finley. Nothing to do with Victor Frankenstein. Victor Frankenstein gets the sort of supporting role, even though the plot revolves around him. It's all Igor's story. The character-driven side of it is all about Igor. And then you have, in the middle of it, um, a fundamentally sort of uh, a deep-seated Christian copper played by Andrew Scott. Oh, see. C, yeah, yeah, yeah. C. No, 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 I think I'll call you C. Um, <laughs> who's playing the same sort of C performance, the same sort of restrained Moriarty shtick that he's been doing for a while. And you're starting to thinking, Pride seems like a long time ago now, Andy. He was so good in Pride. He was so good, wasn't he? He made me cry in Pride. Really? That scene with his mum made me cry. Oh, it's a great scene. Great scene, yeah. isn't it? And one of the best films of last year, certainly. Mm. But... Um, so you've got this film, which is faintly amusing for the first hour in terms of its sort of its interesting quirkiness. It has an interestingly quirky take on proceedings, and you think, okay, for the first hour, this this kind of works. It rolls along nicely. Um, then you get to the end of that first hour. I think the film's about 100 and, 102 minutes thereabouts. And for the for the remainder of the runtime, what you have is let's just write. We'll slap the plot together now. And the, the the it's predictable. You can see the turns coming a mile away. Visually, it's straight out of Van Helsing, or in, in, at its worst, Abraham Lincoln vampire. Do you know, what I was just thinking about. I was thinking the scene on the train yes. where the tracks are falling down everywhere. That very much. And the but the final set piece of the film, which is obviously you know, sort of Frankenstein's monster. That is pure Van Helsing. It even has the <laughs> same sort of castle locale and the lighting, even. <laughs> Although, hats off to it for providing a new spin on the actual monster side of it. The Victor Frankenstein side isn't really... It's not up to snuff. It's not really up to snuff, and you do find yourself, you know, longing for the hawkishly melodramatic days of Kenneth Branagh. Yeah. uh, Which I actually think is an incredibly underrated uh, I like that film. I like that film. That that scene where he pulls out the monster all covered in goo. (laughs) Oh no, I like when he's creating the monster, he's like, lift, 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 lift! Love that. Brana, you god, you gothic god. (laughs) But, as I say, McAvoy goes full tilt bonkers, is the best way to describe it. (laughs) Off Um, a reservation. You you do think, actually, if they ever need another Doctor Who, he could pull it off. Um, The problem is, right, McGuigan directs it with just enough sort of energy, Hmm. but it is an uninvolving visual piece. You don't really particularly care on a visual level at any point. And then you've got Max Landis's work and he's trying to bring yet more of this comic inspired pulp sensibility that he 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 keeps delivering in the sense of I'll give you a great concept I'll give you some great setup and then I'll do nothing with it and we yeah. had this recently with American, American Ultra, Ultra of course in which you think great concept and mm. then you do nothing with it besides just by the numbers uninspired beat for beat you can see it all coming 
and I just don't care. And this is very much the same thing. Um, the problem is really that it's it's boring. You, you've seen it all before, you've seen it coming. And the film literally begins with the line, you know the story. You're like, yes, you do. So why are we here? I mean, Daniel Radcliffe literally narrates this with, you know the story. Yes, we do, Daniel. Yes, we do. And I'm already bored by it. <laughs> I mean, by the time Mark Gatiss turns up, his obligatory cameo. He oh, just, of course. Of course he shows up. Yeah. Like Mark Gatiss turns up. Yeah. Like, Sherlock bros. Exactly. So Mark Gatiss says, we're like, oh, there's Mark Gatiss. <laughs> it's like when you're watching a film thinking, why isn't John Bernthal in this? And then John Bernthal that turns is. up. Which, by the way, literally happens in Sicario. I forgot to say it when we really? reviewed it. In Sicario, you said, why isn't John oh. Bernthal in this? And then John Bernthal yes, turns up. Yeah, another reason why I need to check that film out. Y- you really do. So, should we, uh, should we uh, have a look at what's going on in the world then this week? We've got to talk about Han Solo. At the, yeah. At, so, 50,000 people want to be Han Solo. <laughs> I think more than 50,000 people actually want to be Han Solo. Yeah. But uh, 2,500 actors plus... Mm. Uh, apparently have either auditioned or are under consideration for the role of Han Solo in this spin-off origin. That's quite a long list. Have you heard yeah. who's in it? Yeah. There's some There's some great ones in this. Really and then there's Miles ones. Teller. And then there's Miles Teller, yeah. <laughs> who I like, you... Yeah, I, I'm not a fan well, of, uh, no. Um, but I like him, I don't want him to be Han. No one's mentioned Garrett Headland, strangely. I wonder <laughs> I wonder why, kid. Because his, his audition tape was Pan. <laughs> his audition tape was Pan. They panned it. Um, but there's some weird ones. So, uh, Logan Lerman has apparently auditioned. First time I've ever said, don't give it to Logan Lerman. Uh, really, <laughs> You've said ever. that so much. I yeah. always say, you know what, let Logan Lerman... Logan Lerman should be Spider-Man. Should be Spider-Man. Man. I remember you saying but, that. But uh, he really should. Uh, there's also Hunter Parrish from Weeds, Colton Haynes from Arrow. Uh, Rami Malek. Was Rami Malek, which yeah. is a really odd one. Um, there's uh, also Chandler Riggs from The Walking Dead. Okay. So, so Carl from The Walking Dead yeah. has auditioned to the answer. And my favourite, this you Go couldn't on. make this up. I want, before I say this name, I want you to bear in mind that this person presumably had to tell his agent and or friends that he was going to audition for this. And they presumably okay. said, what a great idea. Good luck to you, Tom. Tom Felton has auditioned oh. for Han Solo. <laughs> Power to him, I hope he gets it. Good luck, good luck. <laughs> Take your stick and paws off me, you damn dirty ape. <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, that would be awful. So, yeah. let's do the top ten real quick. Or, or, or ten to five, at any rate. Number ten. Hotel Transylvania 2. Still not seen it, Case, have you? I'm never going to see it. Well, you know what? I really liked it. I like the first one, though, so I'm kind of biased in that way. It is no better, no worse than the first one. It is an inversion of the formula. It's playful. It's fun. It's comedically enjoyable. You know, it's got Adam Sandler having a good time and his friends having a good time. <laughs> you don't notice that CeeLo Green's been replaced by Keegan-Michael Key. He does it so well. He does it so well. <laughs> Number nine. Brooklyn. Saoirse Ronan. Which, as I say, I really liked it. Did you get to see it in the end? Uh, no, it's on my. Uh, this is probably going to win all the Oscars. <laughs> this, is on your, this is on your Oscar bingo card. For it me, is. Yeah. We are getting to that stage. I now. always try and see all the films nominated. It's always yeah. I have shared Oscar night with you on occasion, so I, mm. I'm, I'm vaguely familiar with it. But uh, yeah, I think uh, it will get a nod for best screenplay because its script by Nick Hornby is terrific. Uh, I don't know about direction. The direction is very good, but I don't know if it's going to get recognised. Uh, Saoirse Ronan would like to see her. Get an Oscar nod for this because she deserves it. She is terrific in it, and she's one of the best young actresses out yeah. there. But we shall see. We'll see. Number eight, Tamasha. Not a clue. Wasn't pressure. Not heard of it. Okay, I, I like the title. I do like that. Yeah, like, yeah. Tamasha. It's, Tamasha. It's, it's just fun to say. Number seven. 
Carol. Which I, I say, I like the film very much, but it's an actor's piece. It's not... Uh, it, <clears throat> Tom, Todd Haynes does a very good job, uh, very distant, distancing himself, I think, nicely mm. from the sort of character action. Um, it is very lavishly crafted. <laughs> it is very much masterpiece theatre at its finest. Uh, Rooney Mara is uh, perfectly balanced in terms of the sort of sexual exploration and wide-eyed sort of naivete and innocence of the character. She, she balances that line really, really well. But of course, it is Kate Blanchett show and she gets Kate Blanchett to do whatever she wants <laughs> 22 Jump Street reference there we had uh, Kate Blanchett Carte Blanche <laughs> but uh, Kate Blanchett terrific as always and if there's a reason to see the film above all else it is her performance she is the unappreciated movie star number six the lady in the van and that lady in the van is of course Maggie Smith whom Dame, is ter- Maggie, Dame Smith. Maggie Smith Dame who is terrific in this having played it several times in the past <laughs> she's got it down she's got it down and then of course you've got Alex Jennings who uh, plays a very very good Alan Bennett and, but not at, the, not at the risk of impersonation he makes it his own he gives it some sincerity and sort of warmth of his own that I think really sells it to really enjoyable, even heart-wrenching at times, film. With the latest film news and reviews, this is Offscreen, the on-screen radio show. And we're back. So, oh, we should plug our competitions real quick. So, oh, we should. Oh, yeah. we've got some great ones at the minute. Yes. So, if you go along to onscreenfilm.com, go in our competition section, you can win some swag, and we do mean swag. <laughs> you, you were quite a fan of the uh, the Pixels set, weren't you? Oh, big time. We, we've got these limited edition uh, Pixels uh, Blu-ray gift sets yeah. that you can win, and they are in the shape of Pac-Man with a little, you know, standing over a little city. And it's it fantastic. Up, and it's got the Blu-ray. It's, it's so, so cool. cool. I, I, I saw it, I'm like, I, I've got to ask for this for Christmas now. I want that on my yeah. shelf. It is the coolest set since the Tron Legacy, like, light disc. Oh, I, I loved I, that. I never got to get that one. Same. But, uh, well, one day. <laughs> they're not, they don't even send us the competition prizes to give out, so we don't, no. we don't, even, we don't even get to, like, just can always dream. casually drop it off the table into the bin yeah. and we'll get oh, that later. Oh, no! It's <laughs> Now upstairs in my office. <laughs> so you can so you can win uh, pixel sets. Uh, we have limited edition Paddington uh, stuff to give away as well. Paddington DVDs with a limited edition 3D box. Onscreenfilm.com. Just pop along there and get entering. So, Imba Mean Singh. Uh, we've got that to review in a few minutes. But before we do, uh, we got to speak to uh, the producer of the film. Uh, mm-hmm. Former CNN producer, Erin uh, Laven. And, uh, well, it was a very interesting conversation. She produced this film based on a project she had actually covered for CNN years earlier. And this is the story of an African choir, Choir 39, who travel around and perform to raise money for the education of the members of the choir and other children in their uh, their local villages. So, over to Erin Levin. So, Erin, the film Imba Means Sing. This is a, an interesting documentary about the African choir. Yes. And I, uh, I wonder if this uh, choir has been around uh, several decades, and uh, you've made this documentary. It's uh, Choir 39, I believe. Correct. So what was it that particularly attracted you to this specific choir? Was the time simply right to tell the story? Or? Yeah, the timing. It was the timing. So it just worked out. I left my job at CNN to make the film, and it happened to be that Choir 39 was about to get selected and so we just launched it with them and so the choir is obviously used to raise funds for the education of young people in uganda and uh, is this uh, do you think this is a, an intrinsic thing for the children of uganda do you think it's uh, one of the more prominent features are there other outlets so the choir actually works in seven countries across africa not only uganda um and they raise money for the 
education of kids in the choir and then also to educate other kids in other communities in all seven of those countries. And that really is one of the biggest parts of why the choir exists, is to get these kids an education and help them become the future leaders of their countries. Well, it's a very moving story, and it's, it's told largely from the perspective of, uh, for instance, Moses and uh, Nina. And I was just wondering, there's, there's 20 children in the choir, and uh, what was it about these two specifically that uh, that caught your attention? Was there a, was there a selection process? Or? Yeah, so when we scouted, I actually went and met all 20 kids and their families at their homes. Um, it took about a week to meet all of them and see where they came from. Um, Moses, so we didn't know how many characters we wanted. We kind of thought of having one because people, audiences really like identifying with one character. Um, I also kind of wanted to have a girl and a boy. So at first, Moses was an obvious choice because the kids had just started learning English and Moses was already able to articulate his emotions in English, which was pretty incredible. And he also just had this great confidence in front of the camera. Um, and then he ended up being becoming the star of the choir, too, so that worked out really well for us. And then Angel we selected because, like in Uganda, as in many developing countries and um, cultures, girls and women don't usually speak unless they're spoken to in a lot of situations. And Angel totally broke those rules and talked to me and my crew all the time and just had this great sense of humor and was so, so cute and wanted to be the president, which was just really fun and exciting. And then Nina developed as a character because she's who everyone was the most worried about going home. She grew the most um, physically, emotionally, intellectually. She just really developed the most on tour and had one of the toughest situations to return to. Um, and when she finally kind of came out of her shell, she was just incredibly eloquent. And she, to me, is like the picture of the of an, the African woman and strength and dignity and beauty. They they certainly do grow uh, over the course of the, of the film. It's it's quite admirable to witness, uh, particularly in the case of, of Nina and Angel. I mean, at one point, they, they can't even spell their own names, and they seem to learn and grow over the course of the film, which is quite refreshing, and it's nice to see. I'm just wondering, was that was that nice for yourself to witness as the film went, the film went through production? Yeah, it was incredible to just be alongside the kids. And I feel like a mom, you know. I feel like my own kids have just grown so much and learned so much and have started becoming themselves as just unique, really special humans. So have you kept in touch with the children since production uh, came to a close? Yes. Um, we have kept in touch through different videos, um, and I get to hear about them from their teachers and the people that are running the choir in Uganda. So as for yourself, you started out in CNN uh, quite recently. Um, was this a story you sort of came across and thought, that's the kind of thing I would like to make a feature about? This is something that could do with more of a look in. So I made a short news documentary about the choir back in 2010, and I quit to make this because... I just felt like the story needed to be longer and deeper and more cinematic, um, and I really wanted it to reach younger audiences. And it certainly will in this form. Uh, is, is, was there not a temptation to put out a, uh, an accompanying soundtrack or anything like that with it? Well, the choir has tons of albums, and they release a new album every couple of years, and they're also included on a lot of um 
celebrity album. So we we it just people can go on iTunes and get all of their music while they go on iTunes and get our film. And how would you describe the support for the documentary? Has there uh, has there been a lot been any notable vocal support for it? Oh yeah, tons of musicians and celebrities, people who support the choir and who support me and my crew. Um, they've been incredible. Dispatch is um, a rock band, and part of how I met the choir, they gave us a song to use in the film, and have been really great trying to rally their fans around the film. Um, yeah, it's just a lot. There'll be a lot more support on December fourth from all sorts of stars that everyone knows and loves. Which sort of segues nicely into uh, the sort of reveal the film will be available from December fourth. It's going digital as well. Is this was this a conscious choice? Was this a specific idea ahead of time? Yeah, we really want the film to be as widely available as possible on whatever platforms viewers use. And so, specifically for me, wanting to reach younger audience, digital made a lot of sense. Because that obviously is an emerging market. That seems to be the future of distribution. Was it a conscious effort on your part? Let's go digital. Let's make a stand with it. an important message. Yes, definitely. Right, so the film was available from December 4th. Erin Levin, thank you very, very much for speaking to us. So in the mean sing, then, we should, yeah. uh, we should discuss this. Now, say, you know the plot, obviously, which is the the education of young African children. And you think, okay, yes, it was a very uh, very noble effort, and you, you kind of, you like the film for at least presenting this, this to us. And it is, of course, you know, joyously uplifting musical story. But that's it. I mean, that's kind of the line for it. It's nothing particularly remarkable or anything you haven't encountered in other documentaries. You, you sort of know this story as it were. But what really sets Imbamine Singh apart is the three children around whom it centres. So it centres around um, Angel, Nina and Moses. And these are all three young members of the choir and they are characters. Moses in particular is just a hoot and <laughs> We have a clip. We got to sing the national anthem to start the baseball game. We went in the evening and there were a lot of people there watching us. Please welcome, all the way from Uganda, the Grammy-nominated African Children's Choir. So as I say, a hoot and a holler, good old Moses. And we uh, say they literally grow over the course of the film. So they start off with very little knowledge of sort of the world outside of, of their own village. And uh, over the course of the film, having naturally been exposed to the world out <laughs> yeah. there, they 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 grow accordingly with it. Um, so this is directed by uh, Daniel Bernstein, and uh, there it, there is a visible labour of love there. There's a lot of care that's gone into the film, and that shows. It does show that they they quite clearly are affected by what they're seeing, and they tell the story with this sort of on display throughout. It is seven, it's about seventy six minutes long. It slightly meanders in the third act because they can't quite seem to decide mm. once the children have returned home quite where to go with it and it does tiptoe around a little bit it does lack a dark side as well I mean it lacks much insight although we're told about the darker aspects of life in certain regions of Africa 
we are literally just told, and we are told from the perspective of children. So you do think, okay, I feel like you're you're kowtowing a little bit around that. Maybe you not need to be shown, though. Maybe I'm not saying you need to be shown, yeah. but uh, you do feel like it's a deliberate move to try and preserve the uplifting and upbeat nature of the film. Now, in terms of that uplifting and upbeat nature, the film is a roaring success. You, it sounds a, it, it is. Yeah. You, you can't deny it. You you can go into it in the worst mood imaginable. Watch this film come out smiling at the end, which, given some of the subject matter, is kind. Kind of surprising, but you know it's a toe-tapping good time. It's an enjoyable sort of experience. You'll even sing along in places. There are certain uh, African choir songs that you uh, you even sort sort of uh, you begin to uh, like and sing along to. You actually learn really? them over the course of the film, which is not something I expected at all. As I say, I liked it very much. I wasn't surprised by it, but I was uplifted by it, which I think is a really impressive distinction. With the latest film news and reviews. This is off screen, and we're back. So, shall we? Shall we spend some Christmas with the Coopers? Shall we, Case? I would rather just skip Christmas. You'd rather just skip Christmas yeah. than spend it with the Coopers. Okay. Well, we should explain uh, probably why. So, Christmas with the Coopers, which is this year's token ensemble Christmas <laughs> drama, a la The Family Stone, a la Love Actually. Um, this time around, season ensemble consisting of Diane Keaton, John Goodman, Olivia Wilde, Jake Lacey, Marissa Tomei, Anthony Mackie, Ed Helms, Van. <laughs> Safety. Adam, Alan Arkin. Arkin. Adam's a son, isn't he? Yeah. Um, Alan Arkin. They spared no expense in assembling so this cast. They did, however, spare a bit of expense on the script. It seems um, this is say they're all sort of, they're one distinct family, but they are sort of some of them are tenuously connected. Some mm. of them are tenuous threads. Tenuous threads between them all, and these are their various storylines in the run up to the big family Christmas dinner, which is of course the third act of the film. Here's a clip. Thank you for taking Madison today. I really appreciate it. Can't be late for work. But it's Christmas Eve, Hank. Come yeah, on. no, I know. Job's a job, right? Um, I, you know, Madison's been doing this weird thing, and I made the mistake of laughing at it the first time, so now she does it all the time. Do me a favor. When she does it, don't laugh, and then hopefully she'll just stop doing it on her own. Sure. What is it? Hi. Hi, Madison. There she is. Grandma and Grandpa are here. They're going to take you for the day. You say hi. You're such a This is sort of like a Christmas dinner, in a sense, as in there's so many components to it, and a lot of them are kind of undercooked. But uh, that's really the best way to describe it. It's like having a Christmas yeah, having a Christmas dinner with 18 things on the plate, and none of them are really cooked right. And you forgot to put the sprouts on. Yeah, yeah, you've got to put the sprouts until just before the dinner was due to be served. It's very yeah. much that. Um, it's very directed in a very Stilton uh, sense by uh, Jeff. Nelson, you've got a script by uh, the brilliantly named Steve Rogers, Stephen Rogers in this case, um, and uh, Stephen Rogers, if you're not aware, previously wrote Kate and Leopold and Hope Floats. So knowing that now, Case, does that kind of shed some light on the film for you? It certainly does. It, it, it certainly does. does. Um, <laughs> that's the only thing I could find to explain quite how spending 107 minutes in the company of John Goodman and Marissa Tomei could be this uninvolving. And it is a really uninvolving film. Because mm, that, that cast, if it, that cast on paper, if you give it to someone, Absolutely that's great. Cast. Yeah, fantastic. Brilliant cast. Um, 
This is the problem. They the, the cast seem to have been drawn to the character-driven banter style of the piece. It's all character. It's all conflict. It's all internal family dynamics, and you can see why they would be attracted to the piece because obviously you know it has that kind of element that the the this specific cast tend to go for. The only problem is. It's not funny at any point. <laughs> it's not interesting at any point. It's not charming at any point. You just sat there thinking, I don't hate this, but I'm so numb to it that it may as well just not be here. I may as well be. It's like opening a wardrobe, an empty wardrobe, and staring at coat hangers. <laughs> you, you think, I don't hate this, I just don't see what purpose it serves. <laughs> but uh, it does. It just feels like 107 minutes of arguing. Yeah. That's really the best way. 107 minutes of just arguing. I really hate the way that it was shot as well. There's some, there's some scenes. Mean, Stilton. Stilton, but like, there is a, there is an exchange between, uh, uh, between Amanda Seyfried and Alan Arkin where it just completely goes out of focus. I found the same thing. But this, this thing as well, the, the comedy in it feels, everything about the film actually in a stranger feels quite cheap. So mm. even the sort of, the comedic targets of it, which is, oh, we'll, we'll target commitment folks and Republicans and... Uh, oh, I hated that bit. The, the whole Republican <laughs> thing, is this, is this 2008 again? Is it, yeah. are we back in, cause that's what this feels like. This is 2008 comedy. When was this script written? You, yeah. I found myself thinking, was this written about the point of uh, Obama's change campaign? Yeah. Because it felt very much of that era, and uh, complete with its recession elements, and you Absolutely, think yeah. it is a very, very 2008 era piece. In fact, if it was set in 2000, it would make a lot more sense. It would. The only other thing that doesn't make anywhere near any, <laughs> near any sense is uh, you've got Steve Jobs. Uh, Steve Jobs. See, Steve Martin. That, oh, that watch would, that. That would be amazing if Steve Jobs was narrating. <laughs> Steve Martin narrating this film, and the ultimate reveal of Steve Martin, which we won't go into. It's not really much of a, you can see it's, it's coming. A yeah, mile it's, away. it's not. It's not seven. It's not usual. Sort of Next level of spoiler. This, this isn't, yeah, this isn't Kaiser Soze. Yeah. Um, the problem is, it's very much the latest example of how did Private Ryan know all that? Uh, no one told him the story of what happened when they were on the way to rescue him. How does he, how does know, he know to tell yeah. this story? He doesn't know how Vin Diesel died. You know, it's, it's, it's that element with Steve Martin. And it, it's kind of, that's one of the more amusing things to discuss mm. in a film just, frankly, this bland and undeserving of any real critical analysis. To describe it as an undercooked turkey would be, I think, heaping it with too much wit. But... <laughs> Yeah, I would just basically avoid it. it, it yeah. It's a humbug of a film. That's what it is. Uh, does it make you slightly angry that this had a full cinematic release and yet Snowpiercer didn't? It, it makes me incredibly angry that this had a full release and Snowpiercer did not. Although that makes me angry with a lot of films. Yeah. So, um, oh, Barbara Broccoli and Spectre. We, we've, got, mm. we've got to mention that. Um, oh, of course, yeah. So, of course, Barbara Broccoli did an interview with the, the German magazine 20 Minuten this last week. That's a great name for a great magazine. name for magazine. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think it minutes. takes 20 minutes to read the magazine 20 Minuten? Get me a subscription for Christmas and I'll, I'll see. It's not really much of a subscription, is it? It'd be 240 minutes of reading. It's a, it's a yeah. good like, weekend. <laughs> Merry Christmas, Case. Here's 240 minutes of reading for the next year. <laughs> you know. <laughs> 
<laughs> if it's a monthly mag, we don't know. Yeah. If it's a monthly mag. Let's look it up for next week. I think we should. That's like Sol 390. Uh, so Barbara Rockley in an interview has revealed that uh, work on Bond 25, the follow-up to Spectre, of course, is set to begin in the spring. They are wasting no time no. on this one. I wonder why. I wonder why. And uh, they are hopeful that Daniel Craig will be returning. He still has one film left on his contract, so there's no reason that Craig won't return. Um, I, I think he's given somewhat of an ending, though, with Spectre, so we'll see. Yeah. And also, I don't think he seemed particularly enamoured about coming back, but one more film on the contract, so we'll see. Yeah. yeah. Let's finish the top ten, then, Kay. So is it five through one now? It is indeed. Okay, take it away, Mr. Allen. Number five. Black Mass, a new entry. Have You you saw Black Mass, <clears throat> didn't you? Yeah, we, we were talking about it last yeah, week. You weren't course. impressed by it either, I don't believe. No, I, to be honest, I think a lot of it, for me, is uh, the um, direction of uh, Scott Cooper. Are you not a fan of that? I'm sorry, I like Scott Cooper, I think. I think for me, it's that everyone seems to be making a different film. He wants to go Oh, that as well. They want to go Donnie Brasco. Uh, some of them actually want to go Goodfellas as well in places. Yeah. And it just doesn't work. And also, there's no beginning, middle and end no, to this Samax story. No, is a completely like, kind of disserviced as well. Corey Stoll is just... Really, I know, really Corey so Although, yeah. he was a bit... I did find his introduction was kind of a bright spark in the middle of the film. A bright spark that mm. very quickly dims. Yeah, of but, course, yeah. Uh, yeah. Johnny Depp, interesting enough portrayal, interesting performance. However, there is no character arc. And so therefore, what you just got is some stuff from Johnny Depp. <laughs> number four. Bridge of Spies. I really How really is like this it. not number one? I don't know. And the best part is, this is the film that everyone we know kind of went to see last weekend. You know that yeah. one film that everyone sees at the weekend? This was this it was last it. weekend. This everyone went to see this, and they all seemed to love it. Mm. I, I don't think anybody disliked it. I think it is just a rollicking, fun spy film. Yeah. It does have its darker, dramatic uh, elements, but for the most time, it's a good, old-fashioned spy thriller with a bit of Cold War paranoia thrown mm. in for good measure. And Hank's... Is Hanks. What's not well, to love yeah, there? Exactly. Like you said, Jimmy Stewart. Jimmy Stewart. Yeah. And Spielberg doing going full <laughs> Munich for us all over again. I'm definitely going to rewatch this and Munich back to back. I think I think you could, although you, you kind of form a weird sort of... In fact, if you, you have Schindler's List first, then this, <laughs> yeah. then Munich, you could basically work your way through Steven Spielberg's 20th century. Mm. <laughs> Let's do that. I think we should. Number three. Speaking of James Bond, Spectre. Spectre, what number is Spectre 3? It is indeed. It's moving down, moving oh, down. Okay, this has this fallen a lot quicker than Skyfall did. Um, yeah. Not terribly surprised because the word of mouth around Spectre is nowhere near as glowing as it was around Skyfall. It's still done very, very well. Yeah, it's done office. phenomenally well, isn't yeah. it? 750 worldwide at the minute? Round about. 750 yeah. It'll worldwide. probably cross, cross billion at I, some I think point, it yeah. will. It's I definitely think. got some legs for the next few weeks. It has. And uh, those legs in traditional Bourne style are you know running excessively throughout the entire film. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, running from Exploding Buildings is the intro for this uh, this film takes place. And that intro is the big reason to see the film, because that introduction, the single-shot introduction to Spectre... Bond goes Birdman. Bond goes Birdman, and it is fantastic, isn't it? Yeah. I was a big fan of that. Um, Unfortunately, after the opening sequence, it really does sort of start to crumble. It's not really particularly involving. It's nowhere near up to Skyfall level. Um, Your villains are kind of underdeveloped, especially in the face of what came before. The story ramps up and then slows down constantly throughout. You can't help but wonder, where is the pace to this? You, You don't seem to have... Have decided on any kind of pace or tone to it. It's very much a case of just throwing everything at the wall and seeing what sticks. Mm. And they've thrown elements of Roger Moore, elements of Timothy Dalton, without really considering that some of these things just aren't meant to go together. And they're very much a case of trying to have your cake and eat it, really. Number two. 
A good dinosaur. Pixar return. Pixar return for the second time in 2015. And you know what? It's not bad. It's not great. It's it's perfectly fine. It's enjoyable. It's good. Yeah. It's sweet. It's, it's better than Cars 2. It's better than Cars 2. It's just what we wanted. It's... <laughs> If I was to compare it to anything, I would say I enjoyed it exactly as much as I enjoyed Ratatouille. That that that's the thing to say. But loads of people love Ratatouille. Loads of people love Ratatouille. I'm not. I've never seen the appeal, and I think I think I feel the same about Good Dinosaur. It's a really simplistic film. Hmm. Uh, it's kind I've of. I've heard a, comparisons to Brave more than anything. Yes, I would yeah. go. I would go with that. Yes, comparisons to Brave. I do think it is. You know, it's the land before Pixar, as I've been calling it. It's <laughs> the land before time done by Pixar. It is the land before Pixar. Bit of Ice Age, bit of Lion King, but mostly the land before time or the land before Pixar. Number one, and she's still there. She's still hanging in at the top spot. Katniss Everdeen on games. Well, you know what? You'll laugh, you'll cry, you'll hurl. No, you won't. Um, <laughs> you would in the first one where it was all shaky cam in IMAX. Oh, yeah. Put but, the GoPro down, Francis. Yeah. Put it down. Put it down. Get a tripod. Yeah. Learn your craft. Um, no, it's very much a case with uh, Mockingjay of... You want to get to the end more than anything, and it does feel like a race to the finish line. It feels like there is a concerted attempt to race to the finish line, to get it all done with, without really stopping to consider the sort of cinematic value of everything on show. None of the characters are really given... These don't work as standalone films at all. There's no, you can't just watch mm. one. Um, if I'd skipped two and three and I wanted to watch this last one, I, you, you really couldn't, for instance. Even if someone told you the story in between. You just feel like there are no distinct character arcs. It's all A, B, C, and this is D. And she's an uninvolving heroine. The bulk of the story beats seem to take place off-screen, which is really jarring for a tentpole mm. franchise finale. And the only real display of charisma seems to come from Julianne Moore and Donald Sutherland, both of whom are the characters you're supposed to be rooting against, which is really counterintuitive. <laughs> But you know what, other than that, for what the series represents, it's a good enough end, it is done, it is over, it's kind of the end of an era in one sense, because now all of our franchises are sort of preordained. So, yeah, you know what, it is what it is. With the latest film news and reviews, this is Offscreen, the on-screen radio show. So shall we uh, shall we check in with the Christmas demon then? Yes. Good old Krampus. Old Krampus. <laughs> so Krampus, which is the Christmas horror film for mm. this year, starring the likes of Adam Scott, Alison Toll, and Tony Collette, David Kochner, uh, Conchata, Pharrell. Uh, anyone else? I'm forgetting. I think that's the kind of principal cast. Those yeah. are the principal and, cast. And those, some kids. Those Bunch are the adults. Kids. And then there's some kids. So basic gist uh, of this one is. There is a Christmas tradition that's gone hereby undiscovered by the American population, whereby when everyone stops believing in the spirit of Christmas, the evil demon Krampus and his minions will come down to punish you on Christmas. Here's a clip. We have to keep looking. We have to pair up and take turns. You can't go back out there. You see this? It's damn near frostbite in under four minutes. Honey, keep your voice down. Besides of being sub-zero out there, someone's tearing through your fancy-ass neighborhood, picking everybody off. It's the truth. Listen, why don't we just leave, right? We can all pile in the truck and we'll just see as far as we can get in. And, and, and the truck's gone. Beth? Torn to pieces. What? Yeah, and even if she wasn't, the streets are totally screwed. We can't go anywhere. It's too dangerous. You got it? Howard, how much ammo do you have? A couple shells still loaded, maybe a dozen in my pocket. Why? I think our best bet is to stay put. 
board up all the doors and windows. And as soon as the weather breaks, we'll go find her. I told you we should have gone to my brother's. Sure, Howard, Christmas on a pig farm. Jesus was born in a bar. Christmas horror film, what's not to love? And the weird thing about this one is that, that uh, Krampus is not exactly a new concept film. If you type Krampus into Netflix, it'll bring up something like 12 different films. Yeah. <laughs> but it seems to have been the exclusive uh, domain of direct-to-DVD horror until mm. now. I think Kevin Smith's got a version in development as well, hasn't he? No, quite well. He's always got about 15, about 15 projects. Films. But he has got a Krampus film in development as well, I believe. But, uh, so, in the meanwhile, what you've got here then is, uh, well, it's, it's a bit of a mixed bag, because it, it's directed by Michael Doty, I believe, who did uh, Trick or Treat a couple mm. of years ago. Now, this, is, this was what I really liked. Back in sort of the late 90s, early 2000s, Brian Singer was positioning himself as a sort of new Spielberg, in a sense. And Michael Doty was sort of positioning himself accordingly as the new Joe Dante to, mm. you know, singer Spielberg. And what you had with uh, Trick or Treat was this great 80s-inspired Halloween anthology film. What you have now is a great 80s-inspired Christmas horror film. And the Joe Dante influence is more prominent than ever. So there are elements, there are a lot of elements in here of gremlins and small soldiers, of all things. And there's even mm, bits definitely. of labyrinth and lots of 80s sort of creature features doing the rounds yeah, in here. Yeah, kind of like a design of all, all the minions, yeah. Very much. Mm. And you can't help but get in on the fun of it. So there are moments of like evil gingerbread men and things like that <laughs> where you find yourself laughing. You're not laughing at the film, you're laughing with it because it is sort of funny in a really deranged way. It's not a great film by any stretch of the imagination, but you will enjoy it. I enjoy it. I, mean, I knew yeah, you were sort it. of underwhelmed, I think. Uh, a little bit disappointed, but yeah, it was it was good. But I think everyone involved seems to get the 80s, so the one foot in the 80s sort of mm. de- design to it. And what they've really succeed, what they've done to really help and bolster the film in, in where it succeeds the most is having a cast who are quite dramedy based. So, like for instance, Adam Scott and Alison Tolman and Tony Collette. And then, as I said to you earlier, the only out and out comedians in it are Conchata Farrell, mm. who most of us now know from Two and a Half Men. Yeah. And she is playing that same character here, don't make any mistake. And David Kochner, who is shown up yet again to play champ kind <laughs> because that seems to be all he plays now and uh, but that's the thing it is fun and grizzly and he is grizzly in places although yeah, it it's, it's fairly bloodless as well in a strange way it's kind of a bloodless horror film mm. the emphasis is more on sort of seasonal humorous terror than anything else but the actual the, the moralistic story behind it you think okay you know what? I can get on board with this it is goofy you can't deny that. The, the, no. the aspect of, you know, oh, children, Christmas, must believe in Santa. That side of it is kind of goofy in this day and age. But that is sort of the point of the film. And when you've got a cast that includes Alison Tolman and Tony Collette and, and Adam Scott, they do sell it really well. But uh, I was a fan of it. I liked the pacing of it. I liked the style of it. I liked the design of it. And I really liked the direction of it. It seemed to have this... It did feel, for lack of a term, better, like looking into a snow globe. It had this very confined snow globe-like feel to it. But uh, the less said about that, for reasons of, of plot, the better. So, uh, no, but I, I liked it. I don't think it's, I don't yeah, think it's an too. amazing film, but it does, it does work. Gods of Egypt, then. That's been uh, an interesting one this yeah. week. So, uh, Gods of Egypt. Alex Proyas. Alex is, Proyas is, is, is that how you pronounce his surname? Alex Proyas, I believe, yeah. So Alex Proyas, director of The Crow. He's come um, under some fire. He has come under some fire for uh, Lionsgate's new film, which yeah. he has helmed, uh, Gods of Egypt, which is an ancient Egyptian epic starring uh, Brendan Thwaites, uh, Nikolai Costa-Waldo and Gerard Butler. Do you think these people have anything An in American common? An American guy, a Swedish guy, and a Scottish guy. Yeah, they have one very distinct thing in common. They're all white. 
<laughs> and uh, I don't know if the title tipped you off. This is set in Egypt, and yeah, there have been some complaints, and both Alex Poirier's and Lionsgate have actually, yeah. they've given their credit, they've gone the opposite way to Ridley Scott, because when it was Exodus, okay. Ridley Scott simply said, well, we wouldn't have got it funded if we didn't. And Alex Boris has said, you know what, we dropped the ball, our bad, we apologise, we'll do better next time. That is most of Ridley Scott comments, I think I will ever hear. <laughs> it is. That is, it's just like... I'm paraphrasing yeah. slightly, but that is more or less what Ridley Scott Pretty said. Pretty much, that is the gist. And Alex Boris more or less exactly said, we will do better next time. Yeah, okay, fair enough, you know what, you, you, you took it on the head, fine. Yeah. Cool, I can live with that. So what's our uh, final review of the week then we're going to do? Uh, Seth Rogen in uh, in The Night Before. Ah, The Night yeah. Before, directed by Jonathan Levine, whom you're a fan of, I believe. Uh, yes, I am, very much. 50-50. Yeah, uh, Warm Bodies as well. Oh, of course, Warm for Bodies. Wackness. Did you do The Wackness? Is. is. that the one that I always think stars Shia LaBeouf for some reason? <laughs> yeah, because I don't know why. <laughs> so, uh, The Night Before, which is the Christmas bromantic comedy of the year, as it were. <laughs> the Harold and Kumar. <laughs> Harold and Kumar. So this is the story of three friends who have a long-standing tradition to spend Christmas Eve together every year. And uh, although it's never really established until late in the film, they do the exact same thing every year as well. They uh, visit a karaoke bar, they have training food they go to this bar and that bar and they do this every year like clockwork for 14 years because one of their number 14 years earlier lost his parents on Christmas Eve to a drunk driving accident and that is Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character and the other two Seth Rogen and Anthony Mackie have supported him on Christmas Eve ever since now comes to the now comes the stage whereby Seth Rogen is about to become a parent Anthony Mackie is about to become well, too damn famous, as we're told. Uh, well, not actually told. Can we get an F-bomb in there as well? And, uh, well, it's time to move on and dissolve the tradition with one last hurrah, which involves the mysterious Nutcracker Ball, the party to end all parties, which may or may not include a token celebrity uh, appearance uh, in the vein of all of these films. Here's a clip. <laughs> all right, so I called the number on these tickets. They don't give out the address till like 10. So that gives us like several hours to hit as many Christmas traditions as possible. Nice. And it's going to be the best night of our lives. <laughs> so psyched, man. Fun. Awesome. Maybe it'll be like the new Christmas tradition. I don't know if we're really replacing this with another tradition. That's a joke. That's a joke. Okay. Ice, <laughs> give me some credit. Obviously, that was a joke. I am totally cool with that. I mean, obviously, he's joking. Definitely. Yeah. Gentlemen, I got the sweaters. This one's for you. This one's for you. Nice. <laughs> Let's do this. Let's do it. So there's our trio, and it's the night before Christmas. And uh, what are you to do when your last film was the interview? So, <laughs> and believe me, that hangs over this film because it is produced and written by uh, Seth Rogen and Evan. Well, it's actually it's produced by Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg. Hmm. It is written by Evan Goldberg and uh, John Levine. Oh, did Seth Rogen not write it? Seth Rogen didn't actually write on this, oh, but Evan Goldberg did. And you think, okay, that's kind of strange. So it's got one of the two writers of both This Is The End and The Interview. And those two films are very, very important to consider when you're talking about this one, because this has a very similar setup to The Interview, which is, let's come up with a great comedic concept and then do nothing with it. And that is exactly what happens here. Although this then tries to go even further by having the character dynamics of something like This Is The End, where you had a group of supposedly tight-knit friends who all had their own internal issues with each other and over the course of the film would have to address these issues and character conflicts would come into play and everybody would learn something by the end of of the show. (laughs) And 
The problem is that this doesn't quite gel on anywhere near the level that This Is The End does. I mean, it is more successful in executing its concept than the interview was, but that's a really low bar anyway. Mm. Um, the problem is as well, the, the film keeps setting up thematic ideas that it does nothing with. Krampus did this actually, with weirdly, with the snowmen. The snowmen oh, and Krampus, yeah. they, they just, show up. They just yeah. show up and they add up. There's nothing, there's no point to them, they're just there. There are elements to this film that have exactly the same effect. There are entire storylines which seem to keep coming up, but don't go anywhere. And, I mean, thematic ideas, like there is a play on The Christmas Carol, which doesn't really add up to anything. There is a play on a sort of the Wonderful Life angle with The Christmas Angel, doesn't really add up to anything. And you think, why is this all here? And in the end, the only thing you really have to hang on to are a handful of vaguely funny scenes... Uh, the trailer moment with uh, Seth Rogen in the church, for instance. That is the, one of the comedic highlights of the film, if we're being really <laughs> honest. Um, and Michael Shannon. And Michael Shannon's performance oh, is yeah, really self-parodying. Mm. So you think, okay, that, he, he's selling self-parody, that's fine. But he is the highlight of the film. Okay. It is Michael Shannon and nothing else. <laughs> There's just this handful of minor scenes like yeah. Seth Rogen. And you've already seen them in the trailer as well. There's nothing inherent to the film inherently in, you know, missing from the marketing mm. that's in the film that's going to sell it to you it is really underserving com- compared to what it should have been and you want this great game changing bawdy you know mm. R-rated bromantic Christmas movie and really you're still stuck with just a very Harold and Kumar 3D Christmas can you watch it again because I think that is quite an important issue with a Christmas film because obviously you want to watch it next year do you want to watch the interview again yeah well, that's the difference it's not a Christmas film but, no, no, I don't. But, but consider, because it, it does feel like the interview. If you want to watch the interview again, that's I've, how I, you'll feel I, about I, I wouldn't need to see it again. No, there you, you won't need to see this again. I don't think you ever. You'll watch it on Channel 5 in three years' time on Christmas. Okay. That's it. So, film of the week then. Well, I don't know about you. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of torn on this otherwise. I think I'm, I'm inclined to give it to Krampus. Well, I'm going to give it to Sunset Song, which we haven't reviewed for time reasons. But uh, of the ones we've actually reviewed on the show, I'm going to give it to Krampus as well because I had a lot of fun with it. But uh, next week's going to be interesting. Next week we've right. got uh, we've got Brangelina in By the Sea. Mm. We've got that to look forward to. We've got Grandma with, uh, is it Lily Collins? Not Lily Collins. Lily Tomlin. Lily Tomlin. Yeah. Lily Collins is the younger one. <laughs> yeah. uh, we've got Peter Mullen in Hector, which is going to be very surprising. Yes, look forward to that. We've got Ice and the Sea. Look forward to as well. Peggy Guggenheim, art addict. <laughs> I know. Oh, yes, please. And because it's well opening a week earlier for previews, we've got sisters. I mean, if we, if we were really responsible people, we wouldn't review that until the following week, which is Star Wars week. But it's getting previewed for a week in the lead up to Star Wars. So yeah. we've got that to look forward to. So they've got all that to come and more next week off screen. Uh, there are other films we couldn't fit in for review. So if you uh, download the podcast edition, the uh, extra stuff is on there. It's after, actually after the end credits. We keep, we keep rolling. We drop a few more films in there. I think this week we've got uh, Sunset Song, Show of yeah. Shows, and Future Shock. Future Shock, Shock. Yeah. as well. So they're all on the podcast edition. Pop along. You can go on iTunes, Stitcher, Acast, any of those platforms. All, or, that, all that good stuff. Or onscreenfilm.com. We have, oh, yeah. we have a, an off-screen section yes, on there. So podcast edition for anything else. In the meanwhile, this has been a Candy Store production for On Screen. I've been Van Connor. My name is Case Allen. And we'll be back next week. Just show me the way to get out of here and I'll be on my way. You've been listening to Offscreen. For more news and reviews, visit onscreenfilm.com. John Wick 2. Forgot to mention about this earlier.
Do you know who's the villain in John Wick 2? Have you heard this? Tell me again. It's, it's really, sure it's great news, but it is obscenely fashionable news. The villain of John Wick 2 is Ruby Rose. Yeah, I did know that. Ruby Rose mm. from Orange is the New Black. Who, like, let's be honest. Most She's of the, us, the, the kind of main villain. Main, as far as I know, she antagonist. is. But with her and Common. Her and Common, yeah. So I'm not quite sure on this one. <laughs> Ruby Rose, who most guys don't know the name of, if we're honest. Most guys think of Ruby Rose as that hot Australian chick who just turned up two-thirds of the way through the last yeah. series of Orange is <laughs> the New Black. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so Ruby Rose, who for some reason people keep putting pictures of next to Justin Bieber. I'm not sure what this joke is. I don't know. Is, is, it, it, is it a hair thing? It, Have we got similar? Hair. I think it's a hair thing. But, yeah, so she is the John Wick 2 villain, which, you know, well, of we course, shall see. it's going to make her awesome, because John Wick was awesome, so... Yeah. So, on to the podcast extras, as it were, then. So, we should talk about the show of shows, which is... This is yeah. a... Oh, I, this I don't really a, know that much about it. This is a celebration of 100 years of circus and vaudeville, and this is sold as a documentary, oh. when, in reality, it is anything but. This was actually... And it adorned... On the, like, you get the production notes, and adorning the front cover is official Sheffield Docfest selection 2015. And this is, in one sense, the kind of problem with uh, venues like Docfest, which is... This isn't. This is wordless. It's actually a wordless film, which is literally present. It's a slideshow of <laughs> archival footage of right. circus and vaudeville acts for a hundred years with an interesting electronic score over the top of it. No, no narration. No narration. Nothing. Really. No, call, can... I know. Call me old fashioned, <laughs> but I thought a documentary was meant to, you know, educate, inform, and entertain. Yeah. Enlighten. Uh, yeah. This does nothing of the sort. This is basically a PowerPoint presentation. If you've ever watched a PowerPoint presentation whilst listening to your iPod, you have basically seen the exact same thing. <laughs> but uh, no, this and it is a chore. I think it's 75 minutes. It is a real chore. Once you've seen one contortionist, you have uh, seen them all, effectively. And that There's is, only so many things you can do, isn't there, really? Oh, you know, it's the usual thing. You know, the the barrel with the board balancing on it, and there's an elephant on one end and a man oh, on yeah. the other. And yeah, it is that 75 minutes black and white archival Nothing really. And you, and you sat through it all and watched it. I sat through it all. I, I'm dedicated to my craft. It, you know, it kind of reminds me of that BBFC story about watching paint, paint dry. dry a little bit. Well, funnily enough, yes, it reminded me of that times as well. Uh, also out this week, we have Sunset Song, which if we could have fit it into the regular show, would have been Film of the Week. Mm. Uh, this is Terence Davies' adaptation <clears throat> of the novel of the same name by Lewis Grassic Gibbon. Uh, from 1932, which is not exactly a recent bestseller. Uh, this stars uh, Agnes Dean and uh, Peter Mullen. Is the story of um, it's a sort of a pre World War One story about uh, a young Scottish uh, farm girl whose mother uh, commits suicide and leaves her basically the sole the matriarch effectively mm. of this family, which have no desire to stay together. Now, Peter Mullen, absolutely terrific in it, but of course the star is literally the central character, uh, Agnes Dean, who is tremendous in this she you you forget that she ever was a model because <laughs> turns out she can act like Good. really you, you will Good never you will never think of her as just a model yeah. again <laughs> if such a she's now a Model slash actress. Model slash actress, literally. Uh, you've got Davies, who's he's never particularly been shy of embracing the emotional texture of any one of his stories, but um, he's also screenwriting here, and he proves to be the perfect choice for it. He's got great visuals, uh, really good cinematography from Michael McDonough, and uh, really solid production design as well, which really sells the world to you. Um, but it has this score to it uh, by Gas Waltzing, 
uh, really moving, almost lyric, li- uh, whimsical sort of a score to it, which really takes you through the paces of it. Um, I was God, I was on the edge of my seat actually the whole time. I really enjoyed it. Didn't expect to. Um, if you looked at the marketing with its it's that faux fashionable art house poster that they've all got at the moment. Macbeth did one recently. Yeah, you uh, know the one. Yeah. There's, there's an app that literally generates these things. You can actually download an app that generates these posters from the <laughs> iTunes store. And uh, that's it. it. It's beautiful. It's poetic. It's engrossing. It is a tremendous film. I don't expect to see it in cinemas for very long, but if you can see it while it's out, definitely do. Uh, enthralling adaptation. I uh, can't recommend it highly enough. Uh, and, of course, last but by no means least, <laughs> Future Shock, the story of 2000 AD. Uh, are, you, are you a 2000 AD fan? Yes. Yeah, I was. Yeah. I was very. I was very much a fan. I think it was about 1990. Yeah. It's one of those films that if if you're you know a kid in Britain around sort of the 80s and 90s, 2080 is what really gets you into the sort of more niche, violent mm. subgenre subgenre of comics. And this film really does sell it. What it represents and uh, really what it stood for. What it was. What it, what really was going on behind the scenes and. The label had its ups and downs. There were creative differences at different points. The company was bought, sold. Uh, there were issues about who owned what work. Uh, very big thing in comics in the sort of in the late eighties and early nineties was: uh, did <coughs> creators own? their characters did they own mm-hmm. their work and uh, more importantly how did you stop them from uh, you know buggering off to the states and working <laughs> for uh, working for Marvel or DC yeah. and did Big that boys. mean exactly yeah. and did that mean that 2080 was just a stepping stone did it yeah. deserve more and of course there are elements to it like for instance Alan Moore comes into play and if you know of course of course he does <laughs> and Alan Moore does not appear in the documentary <laughs> Go figure, because Alan Moore does not appear in any documentary. He doesn't like to be associated with any film. He doesn't at all. Uh, but the thing is, we we now accept that as part of comics law, that Alan Moore will just not be there. Yeah. That's fine, that's understandable. But it is somewhat odd that neither Mark Miller nor Garth Ennis turn up. Grant, Morrison, yeah, Grant, Grant Morrison's there, front and centre. Mm. And there was a good run on 2008 where Grant Morrison and Mark Miller collaborated on stories together to basically spearhead that into a seriously pointed book and Mark Miller is nowhere to be seen I don't know whether or not that thinks that's because he thinks he's too famous now but uh, honestly if you ever meet Mark Miller it's one of the most surreal experiences really that is a guy who does not live on planet earth (laughs) (laughs) really doesn't there's a story he tells over and over again about um, the Superman trilogy he was making with a well-known filmmaker he can't name and I think the reason he can't name him is because he hasn't made him up yet. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it's one of those. He has a flexible relationship with the truth, we shall say. But uh, he, he's not in the documentary, and neither is Garth Ennis. And you think, okay, that, that's really odd since you were such important figures to this to this label. But the film itself is anarchic and wild, and it has that punk rock aesthetic because punk rock obviously played into the, the work of the comic but played into Judge Dredd specifically oh, and um, there's there's a punk rock score to it and a sort of Sin City style opening title sequence and rec- mm. well obviously it's, it's you know animated like 2008 yeah. but it reminds you of the opening of, of uh, Sin City mm. and that comes up several times throughout the film it is energetic and it is fun and you know what you, you will learn something I, I consider myself somewhat knowledgeable on the subject I still learn things um, I was I was impressed yeah. by it 
So, oh, the bit of film news that we couldn't discuss mm. on the broadcast version, by the way, was the, uh, the story that Fox... <laughs> I love this story so much. I love when people say Fox and then start laughing. <laughs> right, okay. So there was an erroneous uh, bit of film news this week by a less-than-reputable yeah. film site that, um, <laughs> that The Revenant featured not one, but two scenes of Leonardo DiCaprio being raped by a bear. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Give that man the Oscar. <laughs> Give yeah. it right now. I'm sorry, but yeah, it would have been the case. If that were true, it would be a case of, look, if you're going to get raped not once but twice by a bear, you can finally have your Oscar, Leo. And if, and if it was by, like, an actual bear as well, that, that is a commitment <laughs> to the craft. <laughs> He's kind of method, isn't he, Leo? Yeah. Um, Fox have had to reiterate that this is not true. Yeah. This is absolutely not true. And, uh, well, okay, you know what, we'll, we'll, yeah, we'll find out it. We'll find out the beginning of, of January for sure. Have you heard what he did do on The Revenant? Though? What did he do? Well, he doesn't eat meat, famously. He's Does quite, he not? Quite a staunch veggie. And there is a scene in the film, in the trailer, in which he eats a raw fish, isn't there? Uh, yeah, well, he eats raw fish, and it's, it's, it's like a liver or kidney or something that he eats as well. Apparently he had that and just was sick straight away. Oh, wow. Yeah, that is some commitment. <laughs> I often wonder if you look at the behind-the-scenes stuff on Wolf of Wall Street, if uh, if he was in fact inebriated. Who knows? Mm. I wouldn't be surprised. No, would I? That whole getting in the car scene that just <laughs> oh, seemed fantastic. I just seemed too real. <laughs> yeah, it's too real, man. Let, let's be, I, I think we all have our suspicions about James Franco, namely that he's not that good an actor. <laughs> but uh, I think or Leo Oscar host. or Oscar host. Yeah. But I think Leo. There's a distinct possibility that Leo uh, Leo may have had his ludes. So, of course, you know, one big problem we have with these sort of podcast extras is we have yeah. no idea, really, what, how do we sign off on these things? And how do we, we go out? See in a bit. <laughs> TTFN, peeps! Um, just some news about Agnes Dean. Oh, yeah, go on. She is married to Giovanni Ribisi. No, Ubisi. no, she was married to Giovanni Ribisi. Oh, no! no, that, no that's ended? Th- that's ended. Yeah, oh, I, d- I looked into it as well. I, I was trying to find... <laughs> that was going to be my big bombshell. Yeah, I was like, who the hell is Agnes Dean? I looked into it. Oh, it's Giovanni Ribisi's wife. Oh, wait, it was Giovanni Ribisi's wife. Oh, she, why did I say it? She, she was. Then we've, we've ended on quite a downer. <laughs> we've kind of ended on a downer. So, sorry, Giovanni. Sorry, mate. Sorry, sorry. So, so. See, see, see you in the next Ted film. <laughs> see you in the next Ted film. Yeah. <laughs> see you in Ted Three Arms. <laughs> but no, so we need we need a sign off, and we're open to suggestions. So if anyone wants to tweet uh, hashtag sign off or. Uh, <laughs> Or, or just email us info at onscreenfilm.com we, we're open to suggestions anything to sign off the show because at the moment all we've got is peace <laughs> let's stick with that for now I'm not sticking with peace peace <laughs> ta-ra <laughs> ta-ra or peace out <laughs> or boom mic dropped you know what about if you do with Sean Bean you're a bloody coward <laughs> you're a bloody coward <laughs> uh, here it is your moment of zen <laughs> <laughs> if you want to go full John Stewart about it. Yeah. But uh, I don't know. We'll see if we get any suggestions. And until then, peace. <laughs>